Mark chapter 13 says this. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and they asked him, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines, but this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. And when these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. And when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter, for there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. And then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. And when he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return, in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. 
Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him to come. This is the word of the Lord. It's so interesting how the disciples, as they were in Jerusalem, seeing one of the pillars of mankind's creation, the, the second temple that had been built by Herod, and their, their awe and their wonder is reserved for this thing that men have made. And Jesus wastes no time and he minces no words, <laughs> telling them, that's going to be destroyed. And within 30 years, he was proven right. See, Jesus did something different. This is the shocking thing for this week. Something that no other leader has done before him or has done since. Which is that the obvious thing for for leaders to do when people want to sway the masses, when they want to, to convince people to follow them or to elect them, the obvious thing to say is, the world is terrible, but I can fix it. I'm the one who's going to make things go well. I'm going to, to keep bad things from happening to us, to our country, to our tribe, to our group, whatever it is. Uh, the obvious choice for a leader is always to say, I can stop the bad things from happening. But did you notice the, the shocking thing that Jesus said? Nothing of what he said was, I will stop the bad things from happening. Everything he said was, oh, I want you to just be warned ahead of time that the bad things are going to happen. There was no sugarcoating, there was no pretending or appeasing, but what Christ was saying is that his leadership was different, that when the bad things happen, we have a leader who's actually bigger than they are, a leader who can triumph over even the worst things and use them for our good and to save and rescue us, not to stop them in the first place. It's a paradox. It's something that Jesus and only Jesus uh, has ever been able to do. And I think it's especially timely this week as the news stories get more and more uh, heightened. It's good to remember that from the dawn of time, there have been wars, there have been famines, there have been plagues and viruses. This is nothing new that we're going through. This has been uh, one of the evils of life since the moment that Cain first murdered Abel. But it's also comforting to know that because this is not new, we're not the first ones having to face this. This isn't a crisis that, that we suddenly, the first human beings in history, are having to deal with this thing. That we can learn from what's gone before us and we can take comfort from how God has continued to lead and move his people through the worst of circumstances, wars and famines and plagues. It's really tempting and easy and it's the, the common human response to panic. That's the, that's the obvious thing to do when, when a plague or a war is coming. Uh, and, and you've probably seen it this week if any of you just through the course of your normal grocery shopping to-do list attempted to buy toilet paper anywhere this week. <laughs> the panicking is the obvious choice. And yet, we who have this particular leader this man who could look at the temple knowing that it would be destroyed, this man who could see more clearly than any of us the wars and the famines and plagues that were coming, who could say, we do not fear. We can have a different choice. We can be reasonable, we can be kind and thoughtful, we can pay attention, but we do not have to panic. 
And I think uh, specifically about one, one particular person, a, a man who's just a, a faith hero of mine, uh, someone who dealt with this exact situation. Uh, Martin Luther, in the year 1527, had to face uh, a resurgence of the Black Death itself. The plague that had wiped out much of Europe in the 14th century came back with a vengeance uh, to Germany, to Europe, to Wittenberg, where Luther was. And his prince, his local governor, um, who, who loved and esteemed Luther in the college that they had in Wittenberg, gave an order. He shut down the college. He commanded all the professors, and especially Martin Luther, who was so important to the Reformation that was raging at the time, he commanded all of them to retreat to a, reclu a reclusive, isolated city to wait out this rise of the plague. And Luther happily shut down the college. He happily sent students and other professors away uh, to get some time away. And then Luther stayed. And he tended to the sick because this was a time where they didn't have public hospitals and people that knew how to deal with diseases. They didn't really understand germs and how that worked, although Luther figured out firsthand through his own experience that you don't want to be breathing the air of people who are sick. He didn't know the word germ, but he was a smart enough guy to figure out that there was something going on. And he stayed. And he watched friends and friends' wives and friends' children die. And then he was asked by other leading uh, scholars and theologians to, to write something to explain what should a Christian do in the face of something like the black death itself. Should they run? Should they stay? What's the command? What is it that we do? And he wrote one of the most gracious and compelling theological treatises you've ever heard of. And if you're curious and in the midst of whatever coronavirus researching you're doing, I would commend to you that you would also just Google Martin Luther uh, plague and read, it's not very long, it's like 10 pages, uh, but read the thoughts and read what he had to say. But let me distill it for you here tonight. That we who have been rescued from sin, death, and the devil itself, we do not have to fear what any, whatever the brokenness of this world can bring us. But if you're worried, if you're scared, if you are someone maybe who even is at a higher risk for, you know, for season of life or, or um, for compromised, you know, if you're going through treatments, um, go do what you need to do. Thank God that you have the opportunity to get somewhere safe. Praise him that we have options. And if you need to check out, if you need to remove yourself, then remove yourself. Luther's first and, and, and upfront thing was compassion. But then he said, but if, if you've seen firsthand and if you know the goodness of Christ that conquers even death, then there is a higher calling, a calling that says to love our neighbor, not just when it's easy or convenient or they know our name, but when we see people who are hurting and when we know that no one else is positioned or able to be a resource because everyone else is running away in fear or panic. And if you can trust in God well enough, then he, then he offers a higher calling. It says to do what needs to be done for the sake of helping and healing others. 
And in our day and age where we actually have hospitals, uh, we have a wider variety of options than what Luther faced, where they really had no choice but to directly nurse and tend to those who were sick and dying around them. We have a lot of options, but we face those options not out of compulsion or out of guilt, but because we who don't have to fear death don't have to fear a virus or a war or an election either. And we can be the first line that says, how can we love and serve the people around us? Because if we don't need to fear, we can help those who do fear. And we can use even this moment as scary as it is to show an unbelieving and hurting world that there is someone who is bigger than the things that threaten and scare us and have been for the last 2000 years. This isn't new. And in fact, if you're able to answer that call, if that feels like something that you have the trust in the provision of God, then we actually have an opportunity that, um, that the world has not seen very often, but we've seen in one particular time, even before Luther had to face the Black Plague, in the year 250 AD, when Christians were a persecuted minority, a plague hit Rome. Uh, they suspect now that it was measles or smallpox, a variant of that, but this is before vaccines. And at the peak of it, 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. And the ethics of the Roman um, civilization and faith system were, if someone gets sick, you push them out in the street and you do whatever you can not to be contaminated. And then the second ethic was the leaders then looked for a scapegoat, someone to blame the virus, the plague on, because that's, again, an easy thing to do when you panic. And the obvious scapegoat in 250 AD was the Christians. It's their fault that we don't have the plague. And they used it as propaganda to try and turn the populace against a, a minority of people rather than have them address their fear and their scorn and their blame on the leadership. And yet what happened next was the Christians, the very ones who were being blamed for the plague that was raging through Rome, the ones who were also watching their loved ones um, succumb and die, they opened their doors and those people that were shoved out on the street with nowhere to go by the Roman elites were then welcomed into doors with open arms, contagious and all. It's called the plague of Cyprian and to this day, it's considered the turning point for why Christianity is the global force that it is today. That was the moment where Christians stopped being a persecuted minority and the moment where they started changing the world. And what was amazing is they took this promise seriously from Psalm 41. Where God says this for those that trust in him who are willing to make countercultural choices. He says this, Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor and hurting. The Lord rescues those people when they are in trouble. The Lord protects them and he keeps them alive. He gives them prosperity in the land and rescues them from their enemies. The Lord nurses them when they are sick and he restores them to health. This was the very psalm that Luther quoted when he was giving the reason why uh, he trusted and why he felt uh, honored and obligated to make a difference and to tend to those who are hurting. And it's the Psalm that encourages me that we in this place have an opportunity to be wise, to be shrewd, to be responsible, but to be a torch in the darkness, to be a people that don't do the obvious things that other people do and to use what is even a scary, dangerous, deadly thing 
to bring life to those who are dying, to bring hope to those who are scared and fearful. This is Christ's charge to you, that we for whom death has no more fear become the agents of Christ to those who are still afraid of death and who have reason to be. And we can be agents. This is what he was encouraging his disciples all the way in these moments just a few days before his own death. He said, it's gonna get dark, it's gonna get scary. Bad things are gonna happen and Jesus does nothing to pretend it's gonna be otherwise. But he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. He's done it for you, he's done it for me. And through us, we can show that overcoming to those who need that hope most. Amen. Tim, would you come back up and sing for us? Let me pray. Lord God, right here and now, we ask for you to be merciful. We ask for your mighty and powerful hand of healing and redemption to be here in this place, to be over all the world. And Lord, that you would not let um, this be a moment where we uh, have to live in fear of death or be reminded of, um, of the things that we've trusted in besides you, but Lord, that you would use this moment to renew our hope, to show us in even deeper ways that our trust in you will not be in vain and to use us to be powerful agents of change in a hurting world. We pray this in your holy name, amen.